thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, it's a real pleasure and a privilege to be participating in the Moments of Change series. And thanks particularly to the three professors in the, the, the class that is part of this, um, Professors Woodbridge, Horton, and, and Tacconi. It's nice to be able to speak in this particular room because I don't know if you realize this, but particularly us history professors, we don't usually get to be in rooms this nice. I don't know if they don't trust us not to leave crumbs or something, but uh, it's the first time I've ever been, certainly give, given a lecture at Penn State where there's two screens. Uh, now, I had originally hoped to set it up so the two screens would have different images on them. That hasn't proved to be possible, and now I'm in the room. I'm glad I didn't do that because uh, it'd be really hard for me to remember which was on which screen. Um, those of you who are over there, I'm afraid I can't point at both of them at the same time. So I'm going to use my, my laser printer over on here. The talk uh, is called Mesoamerican Voices because when I was asked to be part of the series, it was quite a while ago, and I had no idea what I would talk about and what would fit the series. So I used the name of a, of a book that had just come out uh, a year before that. Um, so that's sort of what I'm going to be talking about, Mesoamerican voices. But let me clarify that a little bit more. I'm going to talk about what the Spanish are doing in the part of the world that we call Mesoamerica, but nobody at the time called it Mesoamerica. Uh, and that is, for simplicity's sake, more or less what is today Mexico and northern part of Central America. So mostly Mexico and Guatemala. Um, and I'm going to be talking about what Spaniards are doing there mostly in the 16th century, so kind of leading up to this period of 25 years that this class is supposed to be focused on. And in the second part of my talk, I'm going to be talking to you about native responses to the Spanish presence in Mesoamerica, um, how native peoples or native Mesoamericans are responding to Spanish conquest and, and colonization. And I've got a series of images instead of um, making it, well, it's going to be a history talk, obviously, but um, I tried to sort of accommodate to the fact that this class is more about art history than it is about history, so uh, there's going to be lots of what, at least from a historian's point of view, are pretty pictures. From an art historian's point of view, it's probably going to be a little bit lame, but, and there'll be some text in there, and I'll, and I'll try to make it fairly historical. Okay, so setting the scene for you, um, probably this stuff is familiar, but just so you know where we are uh, in, in terms of time and space. Um, the bottom map here, you'll see two different colors. Uh, I'm colorblind, so I don't know what color the Portuguese one is. That looks kind of brown to me. I don't know what. Is it gray? Okay. So um, this supposedly gray. Um, <laughs> Uh, this is where the Portuguese are exploring, beginning in the 15th century and then moving through the, into the 16th century and, and up to the, the moments of change period around 1600. Um, the Spanish, uh, this kind of terracotta color. How's that? Oh, well, maybe I'm cured. There we go. Um, this sort of terracotta color here is where the Spanish are exploring um, and you'll notice also uh, over in the Philippines as well. Then the second map at the top focuses more on the Americas. 
and you can see that uh, as we move closer up to 1600, in fact, this map, if we were trying to do a map like this for the moments of change period, 1600, 1625, this would work pretty well. Uh, that Spanish colonies have been created um, pretty much in this whole area here. Uh, and you'll see that the white area is essentially part of Portuguese South America or Brazil, although, in fact, there aren't any Europeans in the interior here. Um, I will mention other parts of Spanish America a little bit, but mostly I'm going to focus, as I said, on Mesoamerica uh, and the, the cities that are identified here on this map that fall within that area are Antigua, which is in present-day Guatemala, Mexico City, Veracruz. So it's that area up there. Um, now, Spaniards very quickly adopt a set of ideas, um, many of them preconceptions, and in the end, uh, a lot of them obviously misconceptions about native peoples in the Americas. And here are two images which represent uh, European notions of what this process of contact was like. On the left, uh, you, this up here, Insula Hispana, that's a reference to Hispaniola, which is the largest island in the Caribbean and was the core colony of the Spanish Empire in the Americas in its first few decades. So from the time of Columbus in the 1490s up until Spaniards moved onto the mainland and discovered the Aztec and Inca empires in the 1520s and 1530s. This woodcut actually accompanied one of the earlier editions of Columbus's uh, letters or his... his, um, his own accounts of what he had done in the 1490s. And you can see here that this ship here, I, my guess is probably all of you, if asked the question, would correctly answer that no, uh, Europeans did not row across the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> so if they're getting something this fundamental wrong, which is their own ships after all, you can imagine that there's a considerable amount of imagination is involved in depicting native peoples. And here they are um, naked and looking a little frightened. You see, and here's one actually wants to give gifts to the nice Europeans. And then these other naked people are a little bit kind of afraid. And this is um, a, a notion that continues through the 16th century, even while Spaniards and other Europeans uh, learn through firsthand experience that Native peoples in the Americas are a lot more complex than that. In fact, oh, goodness, they're almost kind of like Europeans because they are actually people. And over on the right here, this actually is, a, is um, representing Portuguese contact with Tupi Indians in Brazil. But just for the sake of the point and the talk, we'll just pretend it's um, Spaniards. They look pretty much the same. Um, you can see here that from the European point of view, uh, what is important to, to them as Europeans is two things. Well, perhaps we could pick on many things, but um, I'm particularly interested in, in two. One is the ships, which, of course, when we see pictures of ships like this, they look very kind of old-fashioned and um, maybe even a kind of quaintness and so on, and perhaps we have silly associations of sort of you know, those wretched pirates of the Caribbean movies or something like that. But at the time, these represented the very latest in, in advanced European technology. This is 
military technology, transportation technology. This is sort of equivalent to, um, you know, those, ma those massive, huge aircraft carriers, uh, stealth bombers, something like that. The second thing is the way in which um, these Europeans are dressed in sort of full, fancy, uh, gentlemanly attire with the appropriate um, accoutrements of weaponry and, and placed in stark contrast to native peoples who, again, um, are mostly naked. And the purpose of that is to set up this contrast between civilization and barbarism. Um, to continue this point in a little bit more detail, this is an image that would have been very well known to literate audiences in Europe in the late 16th and early 17th century. So your moments have changed, 1600, 1625. This was a woodcut that appeared in many different uh, versions of accounts of European activities in the Americas. The way that these things worked is um, they weren't the same kind of copyright laws back in those days as there are today. In fact, this might have even come up earlier in the class from other, other lecturers. So if you saw a woodcut in a book that was, say, an account of Columbus in the Americas or um, maybe one of um, Bartolome de las Casas' books that were sold in multiple languages and did very well, and you saw a woodcut and you thought, oh, that's a good, I like that, yeah. A uh, European guy standing there with a banner and an astrolabe as a ship. A uh, naked woman who represents America. I'll copy that. And so you could. You could just copy it and change it in whatever way you like. So there are, very, there are a number of different versions of this. Um, the most common one, this is Amerigo Vespucci. And he's there because uh, the Americas became named after him. Uh, he there, is there to represent European civilization being brought to the Americas, and then the woman in the hammock is America. She represents native peoples. Uh, and you can see that um, there's obviously a kind of gendered narrative that's going on here, not just the fact that, they're that there's a man and a woman, but the woman is naked and she's reclining on a hammock and she's leaning towards him uh, questioningly. And in different versions of this, sometimes she's pointing to him with a finger, sometimes she's beckoning him into the hammock, in the background, however, there's some slightly different stuff going on, and there's a different message to do with what native peoples are like. These guys are cooking up a nice human leg there, uh, sort of Native American-style buffalo wings. So you got the... They've just... They're getting... They got hungry, so they just chopped someone up, and they're, and they're cooking him up. Um, it's what we do to grad students in the history department that don't pay attention during lectures. Um, Well, so much for, for contact and initial impressions of native peoples. When we move to the 1520s and 30s, Spaniards are on the mainland of the Americas and are discovering and encountering um, uh, native polities that are very different from those that they found in the Caribbean. They're finding empires. Um, not just the Aztec and Inca empires, but they're also finding many other peoples who may not be organized uh, in empires like the Aztecs and Incas, but are certainly civilized. The Mayas, for example. At the time the Spaniards discover the Mayas, there is no Maya empire. Uh, in fact, Mayanists argue that there never really was a Mayan empire now. Um, but 
the Mayas had over thousands of years uh, had built a civilization that in many ways was as sophisticated as the civilization Spaniards were coming from in Europe um, with monumental architecture and a, and a writing system and so on. So Spaniards had to adjust their ideas of what native peoples were like, but they very much want to cling to this simple trope, this dichotomy between civilization and barbarism. So there's a kind of a contradiction that begins to creep in. On the one hand, they recognize that these empires are very impressive and that they are civilizations, um, and they want to make a big deal about how they're able to conquer these civilizations. On the other hand, they don't want to ever accept that there's any sort of parity or equality, that Europeans, particularly Spaniards, particularly, in fact, Castilians from the center of Spain, right, the kingdom that has created Spain itself and then the Spanish Empire. They want to recognize that or assert that that's the real civilization. Those peoples are superior and that um, native peoples were ultimately inferior in many ways, even though they may have created some impressive civilizations and empires. Now, this is an image from the 17th century. And, that, and um, in fact, by the time of our moments of change period in the 1620s, is already beginning to settle in Europe a particular narrative version of the Spanish conquests of the Aztecs and Incas, a particular story which um, sort of takes hold in, in the European consciousness, is translated into different languages, and we can still see uh, in works of history published by other Europeans in the 18th century, William Robertson, Prescott in the 19th century, and in many ways it continues up into the present day. Um, when you turn on the History Channel and you see a 40-minute thing about conquistadors in the Americas, a lot of the rubbish that you'll see in there goes right the way back to the 17th century and to the Spaniards themselves. If we could get somebody like Cortez to sit and watch one of these documentaries, there actually would be very little in those documentaries that he would object to. That He would be a little bit confused about the fact that um, the fundamental message that the reason that the Spaniards did so well is because they had God on their side was probably missing from the documentary. He'd find that confusing. But other than that, there'd be very little. This image here from the 17th century that was a part of a series of paintings on the conquest of Mexico uh, was done for uh, a Spanish official who was stationed in Mexico for a while, and he took these paintings back to, to Spain with him. This depicts the Spaniards on the coast of Mexico, on the Gulf of Mexico, when they first arrived. Uh, they haven't yet uh, fought against and defeated the Aztec Empire, but there's an, uh, an Aztec embassy up here. And what this depicts is a series of incidents all in, all in one picture, and I'm not going to go through and, and talk about what those incidents are. I just want to draw your attention once again to the role played by the ships here promoting this idea of, of advanced technology as a, as a hallmark and a sign of, of European civilizational superiority. Then again, the horses. Spaniards discovered that native peoples uh, didn't know about horses because there were no such thing as horses in the Americas. Um, and they promoted the idea that native peoples were really overwhelmed by the concept of horses, that they were uh, so impressed, confused, they thought that the man and the horse was a single creature. Well. There's no evidence that native peoples thought these things. There's lots of evidence that Spaniards, particularly 100 years after the conquest, thought that native peoples thought that, right? And they like to kind of promote that idea. Look how the natives 
okay, so maybe they weren't all kind of naked and innocent like America on the hammock there, but they did have some very childish ideas about us. Why? Well, because they were barbarians and we're civilizers. And then um, finally, there's many things to talk about in here, obviously, but finally, the cannons. Um, There's stories that the Spaniards told about how they would uh, use the cannons to blast a tree to pieces and how native peoples were so impressed by the cannons and so on. And that has sort of gone down in this narrative as being part of Spanish civilizational superiority and helped to explain how the Spaniards were able to defeat the Aztecs um, and other native peoples. In fact, cannons weren't that useful because how do you get them across Mexican countryside where there are no roads? It was a nightmare. They actually had to dismantle them. And then they got native peoples to carry the pieces. And then they had to reassemble them. But even then, most of the time, they didn't work properly. Just like guns, I'm not going to kind of belabor the point, but there's a parallel point about guns. Um, Guns in the early 16th century were, from our perspective, extremely primitive. And if your powder got a little bit damp, the gun didn't work. Well, if you've ever been to Mexico, you know that it's kind of damp. It's humid all year round, and guns were pretty, were pretty much useless. Um, as the Spaniards worked their way into the center of Mexico and the, the two-year uh, war between the Spanish invaders and the Aztec Empire unfolds, uh, and of course it often is de- depicted and portrayed as as a conquest far more rapid than that. But the initial military encounter was a, was a very bloody two-year war. Uh, Cortes meets the Aztec emperor Montezuma for the first time. Um, and this was a, a moment that uh, became very prominent by the early 17th century in the Spanish and, and European narrative and vision of, of what had happened with this invasion. And these, these portraits of it and these depictions became very popular. Here you can see at the top um, part of one of these series of conquest paintings that were commissioned by Spanish officials. Here is the Cortes right here. And then here's Montezuma on a litter. Um, and if you're wondering whether that is in some way an accurate depiction, see that light over there makes it hard for you guys to see. But there's, he's on the litter there and his Cortes here. You might be thinking, well, if this was done in the 17th century, people knew what Aztecs and their descendants looked like. They knew what native peoples looked like. Well, you'd think so. But in fact, um, this really is not in any way kind of realistic. There was no such thing as a litter like this. And this guy's got a big beard. He looks more like um, a North African prince. So even in the 17th century, even a century after the Spaniards have reached the Aztec Empire, There are still very much old world ideas about civilization and barbarism. What do non-Christians look like and so on that are are being incorporated into these images. Down here, again, this is what's called a biombo. Um, Because of the the connection between Mexico and Asia, I mentioned it very briefly earlier. The Spanish Empire extended out to the Philippines, but the Philippines were connected not directly to Spain. They were connected to Spanish Mexico. That The Manila galleon ran from Manila to Acapulco. So for goods to get back to Spain, they would go from Asia through the Philippines into Acapulco, then through Mexico City, then down the other side onto the Gulf, and then out through the Caribbean trade routes to Spain. 
So there was a lot of connection um, in terms of material goods, economic connections, but also cultural connections between particularly the Philippines, but actually the whole of East Asia into Mexico. And so by the time period that, that you're studying here, 1600 to 1625, there's a Japanese embassy in Mexico City. And the Japanese ambassador, um, the, the ambassadors and their retinue bring with them Japanese clothing and weapons and furniture and so on. And these become very fashionable in Mexico City. And Spaniards like particularly these screens. So this is a huge screen that if, it was, if we had the thing actually in the room right here, it would extend from the podium out to about here. And, it, and you've set it up so it's sort of staggered like that. You probably know what Japanese screens look like. Um, and the most common thing um, as in terms of sort of imagery on these, on these screens was not to depict the traditional Japanese things like Mount Fuji and so on, but to depict Mexican equivalents like the meeting between Cortez and Moctezuma. So here's Moctezuma here, and Cortez is all the way down here. They're both in the second panel from the end. And then in the middle is a sort of fanciful depiction of various Aztecs and Spaniards. You'll notice a woman right behind Cortez, around there in white. She's this woman right here. I'm going to come back to talk about her a little bit later on. Her name is uh, Malintzin or Doña Marina or La Malinche. Um, and she's actually a, a, a native um, central Mexican. I suppose for simplicity's sake, actually, she's an Aztec. She's not really an Aztec, and that's a, a modern word. But um, she's accompanying Cortez, and she's his interpreter. Okay, so what's the point of all of this apart from the things that I've already said? That the way in which this encounter is being depicted by Spaniards is one of a surrender. Moctezuma comes out of his capital, Aztec city. The city's called Tenochtitlan or Mexico Tenochtitlan. He comes about out of his city and he essentially gives Cortez the keys to the kingdom. He surrenders the city. Now, this is nonsense, right? And the fact that there's a year and a half of, of bloody war after that in which Moctezuma is killed and then uh, another relative of his becomes emperor, and then another one after that becomes emperor, and he actually is the one who surrenders and so on. But the fact that there's a long, complex story that follows shows how absurd that is. But it's very convenient for the Spaniards to depict this encounter as being a peaceful diplomatic one in which Montezuma surrenders. However, having said that it's wrong, I want to sort of throw an idea out here that I'm going to come back to in a minute, and that is to look at it from the native viewpoint. That from the native viewpoint, from the native Mesoamerican viewpoint, these wars and these encounters are not simply about European invaders and native resistors. They're not simply about the victors, the conquerors, and then native peoples who are then defeated. But in the native viewpoint, there's far more agency and involvement and active participation. In other words, for native peoples, the idea that Moctezuma came out and maybe didn't quite surrender, but certainly willingly invited Cortez into his city, um, that has a lot of meaning to it. It makes a lot of sense from the native viewpoint. And other native rulers and lords and nobles um, in the decades that followed sought to imitate that as a role. How do you deal with these invaders? 
Uh, one way is to resist them. The other way is to invite them into your city and see if you can work out some kind of a deal. And that's what native peoples thought that Moctezuma was doing. Um, Spaniards discovered that these native civilizations um, were capable of producing uh, pretty impressive cities. And for Spaniards, the city was very important. Right? Castilians particularly, but Spaniards in general, very much city dwellers. Um, they placed great emphasis on the city as being uh, the site, the locus of, uh, and focus of civilization. And, and here you have some fanciful, but with some elements of accuracy, depictions of uh, the two capital cities of the two great native empires of the Americas. This was, as you can see up here, Mexico or Mexico, Mexico Tenochtitlan, city that, that was nestled on a lake. Um, the lake is now completely covered pretty much by Mexico City. And then this is Cusco, as you can see here, laid out in a, in a grid. Um, Spaniards and other Europeans during the course of the century were very impressed by these native cities and these layouts had an important impact on uh, the so-called Renaissance city design, right, which was often claimed by Europeans and scholars to be something that was born in Italy in the 15th century. But if you look at the dates when European cities were transformed, um, it's clear that these places had some kind of impact. This, I should um, emphasize this top picture. Most of the images I'm showing you are images from the period that we're discussing. That's kind of the points, but obviously this is not, in case you get confused and think, wow, those, those Aztec artists produce nice pictures of their own city. This is a modern Mexican imagining of what the city looked like, but um, it's pretty good. I don't... I. I'm not able to, you have to really be um, sort of a finickety specialist of 15th century Tenochtitlan archaeology to take issue with some of the details in here. This whole area here is now modern Mexico City, right? It kind of sprawls across this valley. This was the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan. Here you can see the, the central ceremonial plaza, um, and it's crisscrossed by canals. Uh, more than roads. And then down here, this is a map. Um, this is a map that I drew for a specific book, so uh, it wasn't designed particularly for this lecture, which is why I've placed emphasis on the Maya area. And there's kind of dots which indicate where the Aztec Empire is that don't survive the PowerPoint presentation very well. But the Aztec Empire was this core area here. And then here are the many Maya kingdoms, not united into a, into a single empire or kingdom, but multiple kingdoms. Um, and a little bit of what I'm talking about is Highland Guatemala, which is here. There were three principal kingdoms in, in Highland Guatemala. Um, I got a few final images um, on the Spanish side of things before I flip over to talk more about native perspectives. I just wanted to show you here in one of these 17th century paintings from the Spanish conquest series. This is depicting 
the final fall of that city of Tenochtitlan. I know it's hard to kind of make the leap from that previous image to this one, but it's supposed to be the same place. Uh, you can see how Europeanized the city has become. It really doesn't look very Mesoamerican. Um, and this is one of the causeways leading across the lake. And what we're supposed to believe here is that Aztec defenders um, are gradually being defeated as Spanish soldiers work their way down the causeway and, and, and lay claim to the city. Uh, the only inclusion of native warriors or troops attacking the Aztec city is up in the corner here. It's sort of rather strange looking. They all look white. It looks like a procession of nuns or something. Now, those are supposed to be warriors from another central Mexican town called Tlaxcala. And we're going to come back to the Tlaxcalans in a minute. They were enemies of the Aztecs and they participated in this. If you believe the Spanish view of things, the Tlaxcalans really didn't have a whole lot to do with the fall of the city. So the Spanish image of themselves and what it is they're doing by 1599, so here we are right on the cusp of your moments of change period, um, is nicely illustrated by this frontispiece um, to a book by a Spaniard called Vargas y Machuca who wrote uh, about conquest experiences in the 16th century. And it was a sort of a, a guide to what Spaniards needed to do um, to put down native resistance as of 1599. So the Aztec Empire and the Inca Empire are long gone, but there are still many parts of the Americas where there are independent native kingdoms. You'll notice how he's got a compass here and a sword in the other hand, and he's sort of pulling the compass over the Americas. This is, this is the huge, vast chunk of the world that Spaniards are laying claim to. And then the caption down here is by the sword and the compass, more and more and more and more. You know, kind of modest claim, right? Before I get to the other side of the conquest, just two more slides. Um, here's another Spanish conquistador. I said I was going to mention Guatemala at some point. This is on the left, Pedro de Alvarado. This is a painting that was done of him. This actual painting wasn't done from life, but it's a copy of a copy of an original painting that was done during his lifetime. And you can see how he's presenting himself um, in the full regalia uh, of the middle of the 16th century, even tight tights and everything. He invaded Guatemala in the early 1520s, and he'd participated with Cortes in the conquest of the Aztecs, and then was sent down by Cortes down into Guatemala to continue Spanish conquest activities down there. And he wrote letters back to Cortes um, describing what he'd done and claiming um, somewhat predictably that he'd um, had some rough times, that the peoples that they found down there um, initially seemed to surrender and then rather strangely then put up a great deal of resistance. This is kind of all part of the Spanish narrative. And those letters were sent back to Europe and, and two of them were published almost immediately while the conquest was still going on. And this is a, 
uh, frontispiece of one of those publications. This is from 15, uh, this is 1527. So at, in 1527, there is no Spanish colony in Guatemala. Right? There's a, a horrific war going on that's been caused by Spanish invasion of Highland Guatemala, but it's by no means over. However, at that same time in Spain, people are reading these letters from Pedro de Alvarado to Cortes, who everybody knows by now. He's instantly famous because of his own letters to the king, which he's published, um, letters to Cortes describing this invasion and this conquest. So right from the very beginning, before these conquests have hardly begun, there's a particular Spanish perspective that is being circulated on, on, on what's happening. Um, and in a minute, I'll show you a page from uh, a Maya account of that invasion that gives us a very different image. Final, the final um, slide emphasizing the Spanish view of things. This is from um, this house here. You see the front of the house in the middle. Uh, if you've ever been down to Yucatan, to the capital of Yucatan, Merida, uh, this is the, the palace built by the Spaniards who um, carved out a colony up in the top corner of the peninsula there. They all had the same name, Francisco de Montejo, father, son, and nephew with the same name. Um, this is a modern picture of them that is on the wall uh, in this central square here in the palace of the local government across the street. And, and this sort of inspiration for this is taken from these images here. And this is a close-up. I know it looks confusing because the, the um, exposure is so different. Even I can tell those are different colors. Um, but you can see in the close-up here that here he is, one of the Franciscos de Montejo, one of the conquerors, and he's standing on two Maya heads who are um, sort of decapitated but open-mouthed, right, as though they're sort of screaming or something. Um, well, uh, there's a lot of art historical commentary that can be made on this. In fact, this entire thing here, whole books have been written about it. It's fascinating. But obviously, it's projecting an image to do with Spanish triumph and the triumph of civilization over barbarism that is not simply in a book that only the literate can read. This is on the frontispiece, on the facade of the palace where the conqueror and his descendants are living um, over the hundreds of years that Spaniards are, are, are running a colony in this part of the world. Okay, the other side of the conquest story. I've already been giving you various hints probably already starting to confuse you. Um, and now we're going to confuse you even more. Um, these are images from the colonial period. These are actually late colonial copies of images that were, were originally drawn in the 16th century um, by um, a, mes a mestizo author. In other words, somebody who was descended from both Spaniards and um, native central Mexicans. Here we have Cortez depicted here sitting on his chair. Here's his native interpreter behind him. And this guy here is Chicotencatl, who's the, the lord of the Tlaxcalans. And what this is depicting is the alliance that's being made between the two of them. Right, so instantly this is kind of introducing to us a more complex picture. This isn't the, the emperor of the Aztecs surrendering to Cortes. This is another native lord um, who is never defeated by the Spaniards. 
engaging in some kind of an alliance, some sort of deal, which suggests that from the native point of view, uh, the events of the 16th century were very different, and by 1600 have kind of created something that's, that's not what the Spaniards think that it is that they've created. And on the right-hand side here, this is a depiction of a, of a violent encounter during the conquest. Um, it actually is specifically depicting the Spanish invasion in Guatemala. This is not Cortez. This is just a generic Spaniard, sometimes taken to be Pedro de Alvarado, whose portrait you saw earlier, but I think it's just supposed to be a Spaniard. These are Maya, Highland Guatemala Mayas being defeated. But who are these guys? You can see that one's eye is mostly drawn to these warriors back here. Well, those are warriors from central Mexico. What are they doing in Guatemala? When the Spaniards, when Pedro de Alvarado wrote his letters to Cortez, he didn't really mention these guys. Oh, just in passing. Oh, yeah, and we had some native allies with us. Um, Indian friends, he calls them. Well, the Indian friends numbered in the many thousands, possibly tens of thousands. There were only a few hundred Spaniards. So from the native point of view, this is a very different kind of invasion. Right? This is a, th these are battles between thousands of Maya warriors defending their lands and thousands of central Mexican, many of them what we would think of as Aztecs, um, attacking and invading. And they're accompanied by small numbers of Spaniards who are notable for their outfits and their horses, but nothing compared to these Nahua warriors with their plumes of feathers and the full war regalia and so on. This is what you're supposed to be impressed by. These are the real invaders. These are the real conquistadors. Now, this map is too small, and the, I, the reason it's, I left it small is because the resolution's not, not high enough. I don't expect you to be able to read all the details. Simply, I'm making the point that in the course of various Spanish conquest activities during the 16th century in Mesoamerica, see this is what is modern Mexico, here's modern Guatemala, and here's El Salvador, Honduras, that's the part of the world we're in. Uh, native allies, thousands of warriors who were native Mesoamericans, not only accompanied Spaniards, but made these invasions and conquests possible. And in many cases, there weren't even Spaniards present at these battles. That, that as a result of alliances made between Spaniards and native lords, uh, companies of native warriors went off and carried out conquests in the name of this new power, in the name of the new um, power arrangement or, or system that was being set up. Um, here down, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a sec. Here we have a depiction from um, uh, Lienzo or Codex. These are words that are used by art historians and historians. Essentially, it's a, it's a huge tapestry, or sometimes they're um, enormous um, sort of multiple, and I have to describe them, big pieces of paper all kind of glued together. How's that? <laughs> to create a big poster. And on that poster is a visual representation done by native artists um, depicting what happened during these wars, and sometimes there are little bits of text. Sometimes the text is written in native glyphic systems, sometimes written alphabetically. But here we have a depiction of uh, a Spaniard on a horse with all the native 
warriors accompanying him and embarking on, a, on an expedition. This one is um, actually native peoples from Oaxaca down here. So these aren't central Mexicans or Aztecs. These are Mixtecs and Zapotecs um, embarking on, a, on an expedition down into the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. On the left here, you have a native visual image of what happened during the Spanish War against the Aztecs. Um, here are Aztec defenders throwing stones. Here are some Spaniards in the middle. And then here, more impressively arrayed, these are Tlaxcalans. See, these are other native warriors from central Mexico. See how this begins to look very different from the Spanish perspective. This image here, this is, a, this is kind of complex and difficult to um, sort of summarize, and I've got some, some close-ups of it in a moment. This in, in, in the actual original thing is about the size of this slide screen, a little bit larger. And it only very recently, within the last 10 years, has been deciphered. Um, it sits in a museum in central Mexico, um, it was thought to be an account, a pictorial account of the conquest of central Mexico, the Spaniards against Aztecs. And recently, um, some art historians and historians have figured out that, in fact, it tells the complex tale of the conquistador triumphs of native peoples from this one little town in central Mexico called Cuauquicholan. And the people of Cuauquicholan telling the story of how Cortes came and didn't defeat the people of Cuauhtémoc. Instead, they did a little deal with him. He was impressed by the way they looked. He's like, I don't want to fight these guys, so let's have a little deal. So they come to an alliance, and then the Cuauhtémoc or the Cuauhtémoc ally with the Spaniards, and they go and defeat the Aztecs. And then they charge off down to Guatemala with Pedro de Alvarado, and they set about defeating the Mayas. And there's very little involvement or role played by the Spaniards. In the Cuauhtémoc view of the Spanish conquest of Guatemala, it's a Cuauhtémoc invasion and conquest of Guatemala. And there are sort of Spaniards around in the background, but in the course of this, this is sort of like a map, and as you work your way through the map, it tells you the incidents that happened in these particular moments. You see Cuauhtémoc warriors defeating Mayas with Spaniards in the background watching or sometimes not even there at all. Here we can see depiction of various aspects of this. This is uh, Maya defenders here in the middle being attacked on all sides by Cuauhtémoc warriors. Here's a Spaniard on a horse, just kind of not really doing much. He looks like he's just kind of sitting there. He's like the undergraduates that sit in the back and read the Collegian and listen to their iPods while the others are doing the heavy work, actually taking notes. I'm looking at my grad students. They're supposed to chuckle, and then the, everyone else gets the cue. Oh, he's being funny, and then everyone laughs. It's not working very well, though. And here, here are um, other natives accompanying a Spaniard carrying stuff. You've got various um, aspects of the role played by my native peoples. Um, great emphasis on the kinds of equipment that native peoples are carrying with them. Because the Spaniards don't make a big deal about natives being there, or, or else they don't even mention it at all. These new sources are really invaluable for historians to give us not just the sense of how the conquest 
look very different from native point of view, but also to get down to these kinds of details. Like, what did these guys actually wear? What kinds of weapons did they have and so on? Oh, I'm going to run out of time if I talk about all of these things, so I'll keep moving along. Um, here we have, again, a different version of the image I, I showed you earlier. That's Guatemala, right? The, that's Guatemalan, which is the Aztec word for Guatemala. But on the right here, I just wanted to draw your attention. I should have some text, as I am a historian after all. This is um, in Cacchiquel Maya, which is one of the... There are many different Maya languages. There are about 30 Maya languages. And one of them um, is Cacchiquel, which is a highland Guatemala language. And the Cacchiquels wrote their own account of the Spanish invasion and conquest. Um, and it gives us uh, a very different view than, as you can imagine, than Alvarado's account. Um, and the, in the uh, Cacchiquel account, talks about how many central Mexican invaders and warriors there were. Talks about how the Spaniards um, came in and then negotiated deals and arrangements, and they then reneged on them and their treachery and so on, and talks about in, in, in detail some of the, the, the violence and the things that happened. Um, I'm gonna, I can come back to... I'm going to try to finish in time. There can be questions, and I'll put the, all the images up on here in a slide sorter so that if you have questions about a particular image or text, I can come back and talk about it in more detail. From the native, native point of view, the conquest uh, was not just about native roles as warriors allowing and enabling the conquest to take place, but also the other roles that native peoples played. For example, here you see native porters carrying supplies. There's another one down here taken from a, from a tapestry. Um, here, native people supplying food. Uh, in the logistical terms, the Spaniards would not have survived um, even to the point of achieving military victories if they didn't have this kind of support. Also, interpreters. I said I would come back to Malinsin or Malinche. Um, and here on these images, these three images are all 16th century images of, of Malinche. And then the little one that I kind of just slipped in in the end there. And the corner is painting by one of the famous early 20th century Mexican muralists and really doesn't tell us anything about the historical Malinche, but it tells us uh, something about how she evolved in the 19th and 20th century um, in Mexican culture as this whole different figure as a, as a traitor. This is supposed to be Cortez with, his, with Malinche, his native um, interpreter. She becomes depicted as, um, as his lover. Well, it's true that after the conquest, she did have a child by him, but there's no evidence that she was his lover during the conquest. In fact, the fact that the, the only child she had by him was born uh, nine months after the fall of the city of Tenochtitlan rather suggests that she became his lover right you know, the night the city fell, but not before that. Um, on these 16th century images, uh, we can see the importance that is placed in her, in, in her role. Here at the top, there's Malinche on top of a building, and there's Cortez, and there's, um, is she an Aztec guy? And these little, looks like they're spitting at each other. That is, a, a, that is the, the Mesoamerican way of indicating speech. So 
he's speaking up at her, and then she's speaking down to him. And she's pointing her finger at Cortez, so we know that she's interpreting what's being said. And she's acting as the go-between. Um, in terms of speech here, we have Cortez with a, uh, actually that's Shikotenkatl again, that's a native lord. And here he's in the middle, but you can see how important she is in this, in this particular encounter. Um, and then up here, she's actually got blonde hair. And you notice in an earlier image of her dressed in white how she's become Europeanized. And there's more to be said about that if one wants. This it very briefly illustrates a point that I'm not going to talk about, but I have written about this, and sometimes I give lectures only on this. Um, and that is that Spaniards also brought Africans with them. And there were um, African slaves and free Africans who participated in the Spanish conquest and played really important roles. Spaniards tend to ignore them and not mention them much, but native peoples, not surprisingly, noticed them um, and made a point of including them. Um, here is an African who is a servant of, of Cortez's. Um, here's another native image here of Spaniards that's supposed to be Cortez. There's Malinche again. And here's this African servant of, of Cortez's. Native peoples also made a point of observing um, how serious and devastating the impact of disease was. This was sort of the Spaniards' unwitting secret enemy, right? that the native population was collapsing very rapidly during the 16th century. In fact, by the time of your moments of change period, 1600, 1620, the native population in the Americas was about 10% what it had been before Europeans arrived. So in the course of that period from let's say 1492 up until 1600, uh, the population falls by about 90%. A huge amount of that was to do with the introduction of diseases from the old world that affected Europeans and Africans, but not to the same way. Mortality rates were far, were far lower. And in, in native pictorial accounts, you can see there's a lot going on here. There are dates depicted in, in uh, glyphic letters as well as in uh, European writing. Here's a guy dying of smallpox. You can see he's all covered in smallpox buboes. Um, down here, there's a lord who has died in his, his, of, of disease, and he's all bundled up and wrapped up. And these characters here are all wrapped up, and they're dying of smallpox. Smallpox epidemics in particular um, were very devastating. Um, the alliances that took place between Spaniards and native lords uh, were, were complex and had sort of two sides to them. I'm going to kind of move through um, very quickly some images here um, depicting these alliances, get to some of the more interesting ones and talk briefly about them. These are all, um, these are all drawings done by native artists in the 16th and 17th century. You get the picture, literally. This one's particularly interesting. Um, you can see right up here, this says, Don Gonzalo Matatsin. And here he is right here. And then this is Don Juan Moctezuma. So these are native lords. Obviously, Don Juan Moctezuma is from the royal family um, of, of, of the Aztecs. 
These are lords who survived the Spanish invasion. In fact, not only that, but participated in Spanish conquests. Don Gonzalo Matatzin actually claims to have gone off on extensive conquest expeditions in the 1520s without any Spaniards present and established uh, Spanish colonial expansion um, for the Spaniards and then provided them with tribute items and so on. And what these items are here is showing what tribute needs to be paid for each quarter of the year. These are the four quarters of the year. Um, and also, what pieces of it go to these, these lords and then these subject lords down here. In other words, there's two sides to this. One side is that these native lords are recognizing that there's a new regime. That they have a Spanish Christian name. They've been baptized. They're part of the new hierarchy, part of the new power structure. And they're not the absolute top guys. They're passing on tribute goods to Spaniards. Um, and in geographical terms, they're out in the provinces, and those goods are going into what used to be the Aztec city of Tenochtitlan. It's now the Spanish capital of Mexico City. But the flip side of it is that they still control their local areas. They have a don title, which means a lot. Nowadays, in the Spanish-speaking world, you know, you know, you, you call your, the, the janitor in the building Don Juan, just to be polite. Right? But in the 16th century, that was the title that was, that was earned. It really meant something. Um, and in, in native circles, it meant that you were a, um, a local lord, that you ruled not just a town, but probably um, a substantial area. So this being part of this new power structure means that there are benefits that are coming to native lords and... Interestingly, as I just said, these are native lords who were never defeated by the Spaniards in battle, and they make a big deal of that. That's how they see themselves. Here's another one of these tribute documents um, that I'm going to... Oh, it's pretty, but I'm going to keep going through that. Um, more tribute documents. I can come back to these in the what little time left for questioning if you want. Um, I've just got four or five more images, and then I'll, and then I'll be quiet. What this one does is, is make um, a point about, about dynasty. So I've been talking about native lords and the deal that they're doing with, with Spaniards. Sometimes we see how the significance of this from the native point of view shows a continuity from before the arrival of Spaniards through the time of the invasion and the arrival of Christianity and conversion to Christianity up until the present. This is actually from Yucatan, this is a Yucatec Maya dynasty called the Shu, spelt X-I-U, but pronounced like a, like a Shu. And although these are kind of European-looking uh, uh, characters, um, according to the timeline here, they're actually um, supposed to have lived in the, about the 10th century in our calendar. And then the descendants up here are from the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. So at some point in here is the Spanish invasion. But you only know it if you look really closely and you can see when people start to have Christian names, Christian first names. But they all have the last name of Shu, of the dynasty. So from the Maya elite viewpoint, from the viewpoint of this one native dynasty, continuity is far more important than, than the changes have taken place. Um, that continuity also is reflected in the of native 
communities and towns and the survival of their lands and the way in which they view and organize their lands. Um, and these are from two different regions within Mesoamerica. Here's a native map. Um, you can see it has native map characteristics. These are glyphs giving town names. The little footprints are how um, native map makers indicated where roads were. But obviously this is after the conquest because this is a church tower with a cross and a bell and so on. So what we have here is a, a, some kind of hybridization that's taking place whereby native Mesoamerican way of doing things, of thinking about their world, um, of preserving their world, have survived and accommodated the changes that have taken place. And here we have, this is, could be a map drawn of um, lands that are controlled by this particular family, and the head of the family there is there with his head. This could have been drawn before the conquest except for one small problem, alphabetic writing. But other than that, that's the only accommodation that has, that has been made there. I'm almost done. The final point I want to make um, is to do with writing. Um, native communities survived, and part of that survival was to continue to maintain um, various traditions uh, in order to pass on lands um, to, to, to heirs, to, to buy and sell property within the community, and to record that on paper. Uh, but they accommodate to Spanish ways of doing things by writing their own languages, but in, in Spanish alphabet. So this document here, which you might be looking at wondering whether if you speak Spanish you can read it, it's in Yucatec Maya. Now, there are some Spanish words in there, but it's a Maya document. It's a land sale document. This document down here, which, is, which you really can't read because I put it so tiny, um, is, a, is a document about politics. It's actually an election record from a Maya village. Um, actually, quite a bit beyond our time period. This is in early in the 19th century. What about Christianity and churches? I get to the end, I'm going to make this point in a very kind of superficial way. You remember those images of the Aztec city of Tenochtitlan? The pyramids in the middle? Well, this is what happens to that city. Uh, this is the cathedral that is built right in the center of that plaza. So this was the plaza of Tenochtitlan, and here was the big pyramids, and now there's this cathedral here. This is actually the same building in a, in a picture taken a couple of years ago. Um, this is our, a provincial capital in Mexico, big church. Does this simply indicate uh, the change uh, and, and not the continuity? Do we see here that, well, okay, it's the same plaza, but look how the building is different and the power structure is different? Not necessarily. If we take it down to the local level, hey, come back. There's another image in the corner there that I don't know why that hasn't come up. But If we take it down to the local level, we can see that the new religion is appropriated by native peoples and made their own. That the Christianity, the Catholicism that's being practiced by um, Mayas and other Mesoamericans is not the same as the Catholicism being practiced by Spaniards back in Spain. They're building their own churches. This was a picture taken last year. This was the 16th century church in this little Maya village uh, that got burned down in a war in the 19th century. Um, 
And this was the back of that same building that they then repaired. But this is a kind of classic colonial style. Um, here's a procession of musicians. This document here, again, is a document in Maya. This is a will. This is somebody leaving their, their house and lands and goods to their ancestors in the colonial period, written alphabetically, but written in Maya. And it begins with a long religious preamble mentioning uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and so on. In some ways, following the kinds of formulas and practices that Spaniards followed back in Spain, but in many ways, Mayanizing or localizing Christianity. So as we kind of move out of that early conquest period through the period that you've been studying, that 16, 1625 period, later into the colonial period, and we start looking at other aspects of culture, from the native point of view, we can see how continuity is far more important to native peoples than, than change and that there's been an, an accommodation and the process is far more complex than Spaniards would have you believe with their nice, tidy conquest pictures and paintings. I've spoken way too long, so I will shut up. And if there's any questions, if you're not all completely exhausted and zoned out by now, I'm happy to go back and, and revisit any of these images and explain anything that didn't make any sense. What effect has this had on um, the Spanish that's spoken in Mesoamerica today? Uh, Mexican Spanish, well, I, I guess you can sort of speak in general terms, I guess, about Mexican Spanish, um, is distinct from the Spanish spoken elsewhere in the Spanish-speaking world because of the impact of native languages. That's the sort of simple answer. The more complex answer is that Spanish is actually spoken a little bit differently in different parts of Mesoamerica. So the Spanish that's spoken in Yucatan, for example, has some Maya words in it. The accent and inflection tends to be slightly different and has accommodated the way that Mayas speak. Um, there's a central Mexican Spanish that has words from the Aztec language of Nahuatl in it. Um, often those words aren't really like the original Nahuatl words, but they're not Spanish or they're not Spanish Spanish words. Um, they're, they're Hispanized versions of those words. But yes, the, the, and the native languages are still spoken. Right? There are still a million speakers of, of the Aztec language of Nahuatl, a million, more than a million people still speak Yucatec Maya. Um, now, most of the languages that were spoken when the Spaniards arrived no longer exist and are not spoken, but the major languages are still spoken. 100, 200 years from now, there'll be even fewer and fewer, and, they, and sadly, it seems to be inevitably that the total number of languages is declining as it is all around the world. A thousand years from now, everyone will be speaking some kind of horrendous version of American English probably, yeah. 